This podcast is powered by Pivotal Moments Media. Check out our education, content, and more at PivotalMomentsMedia.com. Rise Above is a podcast series powered by Pivotal Moments Media that focuses on real people from all walks of life as they tell their story of adversity. Rise Above is defined as not allowing oneself to be hurt or controlled, where we can either sit in the hardships that we experience in life, or we can rise above them. Join us and visit Pivotal Moments to subscribe and follow this journey. Welcome to uh, this first episode of Rise Above, powered by uh, Pivotal Moments Media. We have a very, very special guest today, a person that I'm just very proud and enthused about knowing being able to call my friend. He's been through uh, a number of things and an idol and in, 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 in pro football. I had some uh, uh, some setbacks uh, after football and rose back to the top and has really been an idol and a shepherd to so many people and doing so many good things. His book, Off Center, it's a memoir of addiction, recovery, redemption, and professional football. Please read it. Mine's kind of bent because I've, I've read this thing two times and it's absolutely a, a amazing. Just a little bit of background. You, you know, uh, Randy's just a, a huge uh, pillar, particularly for Tampa Bay, played for uh, from 1983 to 1992. People were coming to games just to see this guy play. Came from uh, his roots are in Tyler, Texas, and uh, ultimately went to Baylor, where he he met his uh, lovely wife Lydia. And you know, doing so many positive things in his book. And I'm not going to spoil it for you guys. But he talks about some of these three pillars: you know, family, the heavenly Father, and the wife. And you know, make sure you marry the 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 right woman. And I tell you, just a just a just a huge huge. Uh, privilege to be able to interview this this guy and talk to him and call him my friend. In September 2019, uh, he was inducted into the Mike Dick, a Gridiron Greats Hall of Fame. This is not something that's given to many players at all, and uh, just well respected by people like the great coach Mike Dick, uh, uh, Eric Hipple, um, and, and it go, goes on and on many, many uh, professional guys. Um, you can you see him on um, uh, Pro Athletes and Recovery. Uh, and also another web website called rickygrimespeaks.com. And we'll get to some of that. We'll put those things out for you so you can uh, tune in. And uh, about five months ago, he was he was on Dr. Drew. So, you know, a lot of people are interested in what he has to say. And uh, without any further ado, my good friend, Randy Grimes, thanks for being here, man. Thanks for taking the time to, to, to join. Man, I can't thank you enough. What a great opportunity for me. And I get to see you again. You know, you're a hard guy to catch up with. <laughs> Man, it's been too long, and look, I, I'm just, I'm just so happy, and uh, yeah, we gotta, we gotta make this happen soon. I'm, I'm gonna come down and see you, uh, but I wanted to dive right into. I know, I know your time's precious, and you can get called away at any moment because you're doing a lot of, a lot of big things for, for some good people. Um, talk about Tyler, Texas, and and growing up, and some of the trials and tribulations you, you came through. Because some people look at professional athletes and they go, man. Guy Randy, man, he had it all going and just walked through it, and it was so simple. Talk about growing up on the farm. I know your, your mom and dad were on the farm, and and uh, and and you had some adversity you had to overcome, and particularly about that event when you were eight years old. Oh well, yeah, and uh, you know Tyler, Texas, and growing up in East Texas, it was all about Friday night lights, football, you know, uh, pasture parties, pickup trucks, and girls. You know, that's pretty much <laughs> what it, what the whole thing was about. And, uh, you know, uh, I grew up in a, in a great Christian home, you know, mom and dad, you know, they had me in church every Sunday, every, uh, you know, there was no history of substance abuse in my family, 
Um, you know, there was no indication of what lied ahead for me. You know, it was football came easy for me. You know, I, it's not something I had to really work at. You know, it, it just came. I had an older brother who was a motivator. You know, I had a dad who was a parole officer by profession, but he should have been a football coach. And so I had those motivators that were pushing me. You know, I can remember sitting in his lap for a many uh, Dallas Cowboy football games, you know, and just watching football. And well, instead of out in the yard playing or running around the neighborhood, you know, I was sitting there watching professional football at an early age. But, you know, that's what I love to do. And football, football was something that, like I said, came easy for me. It came easy for my older brother who went off to Southern Arkansas on a scholarship and played and, you know, little did I know uh, that other the scouts were coming around from different colleges and looking at older guys or the guys that were, that were seniors at the time. I was junior at the time. And that's when I started thinking, you know, maybe I could take this to the next level, you know, or, or let's see what happens if I do take it to the next level. And I had a great senior year. I could have gone anywhere in what was then the Southwest Conference. Um, you know, Baylor, Rice, TCU, Arkansas, SMU, Texas, Texas Tech, uh, all those great schools. And I chose Baylor because I wanted to be, I wanted to make mama happy and be that good Baptist son and go play for Grant's half. And it was the best decision I ever made because I met my wife the very first day, my freshman year, we went out that night. We got married after our junior year. She was going to teach. I was going to coach. We were going to live that all-American dream. And again, Doc, football just came easy for me. I played with some great guys. I had to play against – I had to go against Mike Singletary every day in practice. And he made me a better player because of that. But also played with a lot of other guys that are Hall of Famers, a lot of guys that were all pro in the NFL, had great long careers, Van McElroy. Walter Abercrombie, a lot of great players there. And uh, again, football came easy for me. And, you know, even through college, there was still no uh, indication of what lied ahead. There was no substance abuse, you know. Was, that was something that wasn't even on my radar at the time. And uh, again, scouts started coming around looking at the older guys and they, they picked up on me. They saw me. And I knew that if I had a great senior year and then I had a great combine, or a great two or three combines that, uh, that I was going to be drafted in an early round and everything worked out. And, uh, I was, I was drafted in 1983 in the second round, the 45th players selected, uh, the second center taken that year behind Dave Remington. So, you know, uh, life was, life was great. We were already married. We got married after our junior year. So, you know, it's just me and her sitting by telephone in a, in a one bedroom efficiency on the campus of Baylor university waiting for that phone to ring. And sure enough, you know, Coach McKay called, Randy, we just drafted you in the second. I'll see you tomorrow. Click. And that was it. You Incredible. know, now, now it's uh, now it's ESPN all day and all these great big uh, productions they put on and green rooms and private jets and all that. But back then it was just me and her sitting in a room by ourselves waiting on that call. Right. So, so like, a, you know, for, for athletes in high school um, that also feel like, you know, football comes easy, basketball comes easy, but you, but you put in a lot of, a lot of dedication too, and you worked your butt off in the gym and all that. Can, can, can you speak to some of those people in the audience that might think, you know, this is easy. Maybe I shouldn't work out because you, you're pretty focused in high school and college and all that. And you went, you took that, that extra step to, to make it into the professional ranks, right? 
Yeah, and when I say it came easy for me, that I'm not saying I didn't do the work, but by by saying that it came easy for me, I enjoyed the work. Right. You know, I enjoyed spending the time in the weight room. I enjoyed I enjoyed the one-on-one -on -one drills, you know, where you had to really prove yourself at practice. Uh, you know, I played in an era where we used to beat the heck out of each other all week long, and hopefully right. there was enough left in the tank to play on Sunday. You know, I call it that junction boy bear bryant mentality where if you don't practice well you're not going to play well you know right i mean yeah the, game, the game's changed so much that they don't do that anymore because of all the new collective bargaining agreements and they hardly put on pads ever and 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 there's less injuries during the week as opposed to back when i played when we suffered a lot of the injuries but you know, I enjoyed that stuff. You know, I enjoyed going one-on-one -on -one with people. I enjoyed getting in the weight room. I enjoyed doing everything in the off season to prepare for the next season. And, you know, I, I looked at it for when I was in high school and college, it was really fun. But when I got to the pros, it turned into a job, but it was a job that I enjoyed doing, you know? Gotcha. So it took a lot of work. I mean, you can't just walk on a field and, and, and dominate and get all the attention. You've got to put in the work in the, in the weight room, in the off season, after practice, before practice, and in the classroom. Because had I not made all the grades going all the way through, all that wouldn't have been possible. Right. No, I hear you. Um, so what, what do you think your biggest challenge is in terms of like adversity? Um, you know, going from college, going from high school, now you're at Baylor. And you know, you've met you've met the one of your dreams, but having to focus and balance your studies with uh, athletics, how, how did you balance that while trying to also find your identity and all that? Because I know you kind of talked about defining who you were and where you wanted to be in terms of your identity, but but how how were you able to balance school and also athletics while also trying to find your identity in uh, college? Well, and, and I think I had a lot of great mentors. You know, I had a lot of uh, a lot of help along the way. You know, I certainly couldn't have done any of it by myself, but especially at, at Baylor, you know, and I, and I struggled a lot, you know, there because the classes that I took were hard. Uh, the the the, um, the the time that I could devote to my studies was 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 few and in between. And um, it, it, it took a lot. It took it took a lot of people to get me through, and I give my wife a lot of credit too for that too. <laughs> and, but I, you know, uh, I knew that it was something that I had to do. I, you know, not only did I want to do it personally, but it was something that I had to do to stay eligible. You know, so that's a great motivator right there. But you know, as far as defining myself, I'm not sure I was ready to start defining myself because I just enjoyed playing the game so much at the time. You know, I was having a great time in college. I loved my teammates. I loved the dorm life. I loved uh, walking over and being with my, with my future wife at the time at her dorm, you know, dating. You know, we were still kids back then. We were still youngsters. And uh, we, we had a great time at Baylor University. You know, I can't say enough about Baylor. I go back there all the time. You know, I get to meet, see my teammates and all that. And that, those were the best four years of our lives. And um, so searching for my identity didn't really start until I drove into Tampa, Florida. Gotcha. So now you're, now you're at Tampa. 
And everybody, you've got, like you said, you know, ESPN time now. People know who you are. And, man, they're they're counting on you to kind of bring back, you know, the Tampa Bay Buccaneer spirit and all that. Kind of walk us through that first several years defining yourself um, and what that was like, like playing against some of the great guys that that, that you were playing and ultimately becoming a starter uh, you know, on, that, on, that, on that football team. Yeah, and the extra pressure that was put on me that year was Tampa did not have a first-round pick. They had traded it away the year before. So me being their second-round pick, I was basically treated like their first-round pick. So, yeah, there was a lot of expectations put on me. And, you know, I, I was a kid from East Texas. You know, I was a kid from the Southwest Conference. Uh, you know, we didn't pass a lot. So I had to learn how to pass block when I got into the NFL. But, you know, it, it was – I had a locker next to the great Leroy Selman my rookie year. And, uh, man, we had a lot. He, he was my mentor there. He was, the, he, was, he was that first NFL legend that I had been watching play. You know, he was like the Roger Staubach that I'd been watching on TV, you know, or, or the Randy White, you know, or the Bob Hayes and all that. He was that guy. And I had a, here I was with a locker right next to him, dressing next to him. And, you know, the first thing I learned from Leroy was that, Football was no longer a game. It was now a job. And the second thing I learned from Leroy was you do whatever you have to to stay out on that field. Because if you're not out there in your position, somebody else was going to be. And, you know, you didn't want to get that reputation of uh, always being on the injury report or always uh, missing practice or always back in line to see the doctor in, in the training room or always being worked on or spending all your time in the, in the whirlpool, you know, you, you didn't want to get that reputation or always on the injury report because that was a reputation you were never going to get away from and what was sure to be a short NFL career. So, right. you know, that that's where my story begins as far as off center. Yeah. So, you know, and I see this with a lot of, you know, with, with some of the uh, guys that, that race uh, and some of the racing organizations and obviously high, high contact sports, like football, hockey, et cetera. Uh, and you're helping some of those people now. Um, I guess talk to you a little bit about how, how you know, Off Center started. I mean, that's, that's why you wrote the book and you're helping so many people from your, from your experiences. Because you, you were indoctrinated into, the, into this culture uh, in the NFL where some of these things just, they were just kind of given out to you guys. Right, right. And that's why I emphasize so much that there was no history in my family. You know, I was not a product of my or maybe I was of my environment, but no genetic predisposition or anything like that. You know, back when Leroy told me, you do whatever you have to to stay out on the field, I'm sure he didn't mean take a handful of opiates every day and, and practice through the injuries and the, and, the, and the different things that are going on with your body. And I'm sure he didn't mean take a handful of sleep pills at night to, to get through, to get to sleep through the throbbing pain so you could get up and do it again the next day. But that's what, that's what I started doing. I was willing to do whatever I had to to stay out on the field. And this is, you know, Doc, this is back when I was 23 years old. You know, this was back when I was playing some of the greatest guys that ever played the game. Um, this is back when I wanted to be all pro. I wanted to feed my family. I wanted that next big contract. I wanted to be the greatest center that had ever played the game. And I was willing to do those things to be that person, to find that identity. And, 
you know, I justified it so well back then because, like I said, I wanted to be the best that ever played. I wanted the next big contract. I wanted to feed my family. You know, those are ways that I justified it. Plus, you know, I was saying, hey, I'm getting it from team doctors, so it must be okay, right? Or I'm getting it from the team trainers, or I'm just walking back there and getting it myself out of the drug safe and nobody's saying anything, you know, so it must be okay. That must just be the culture of the NFL. So those are ways that I justified what I was calling a, a necessary evil when in fact it was turning into a full-blown addiction that went on my whole career there, you know, for the next eight and a half, nine years in Tampa. And, uh, you know, that necessary evil, you know, doc, here's the funny thing about that is that in, in that eight and a half, nine years that that was going on, not once did anybody ever call me out. You know, not once did ever anybody ever ask Randy, why are you slurring your words or why are you nodding off in meetings or, or why are you the last to leave the building every night and pills are missing out of the safe? Nobody ever called me out on that because I was always playing good, you know, and if it ain't broke, don't fix it. And uh, that, you know, I always think if somebody would have just called me out on that once or maybe helped me get through that. And I'm not certainly don't blame anybody else ever. You know, I'm responsible for everything that I did and put in my body. But I just think, man, if somebody would have called me out on that, maybe it would have stopped. You know, maybe it, it wouldn't have progressed to the point to where the last two years of my career, I was playing games in complete black, blackouts. You know, I was taking so many benzodiazepines before games and so many opiates before games that, you know, I was and I was a starting center. You know, I was the quarterback of the offensive line. I was the guy that was audibling uh, blocking schemes and getting guys going in the right direction and listening to the quarterback and, and making sure if he audible, making sure I changed everything on the uh, on the offensive line. I was the quarterback of the offensive line, and I was doing it all in a blackout. Last two years of my career, I don't remember playing any of the games. Wow. You know, now that we have concussions and CTE and all those things ongoing, and look, people put pressure on players to get back in the game. You know, I've worked with, with a number of people as well. And, you know, I think about this concept of, um, you know, guilt versus shame, you know, guilt being, well, that was bad or versus shame or, okay, I am bad. You know, how, how do you balance that or, or give advice to some of those other players that are out there? Because some of that's obviously still going on. The pressure to get back in the game, whatever it takes, stay in the game, do it. We'll give you these pain meds because, again, you guys are indoctrinated into this. This is the culture. This is what it's supposed to be. And it's doctors like myself giving you this. How, how do you how do you as a new player coming in? Um, how, how could you penetrate that their mindset of, OK, that's not right. And this is what could potentially happen to you once it's all said and done. Yeah, you're right, man. And I call it I know you've probably called it this, too. It's that warrior mentality. You know, it's that big boys don't cry mentality that our dads raised us like because that's how their dads raised them. You know, you uh, you uh, you pick yourself up, dust yourself off and get back in the huddle, you know, and you keep your mouth shut. You, you suffer in silence. So, you know, that's what men do, you know, and, and my message today is that, no, that's not what men do. You know, it's OK to not be OK, but you've got to raise your hand and ask for help. And that suffer in silence mentality that's fueled by guilt and shame and pride and ego and all the things that athletes struggle through, um, you know, that, that gets people killed. And, and hopefully now, 
you know, especially over the last five to maybe 10 years, you know, I think that there's been more people talking about mental health and more people talking about substance abuse and how, and so often they both go together, but at least more people are coming out and talking about it and removing the stigma that's, that's associated with mental health and, and substance abuse diseases. And I think people are realizing now that it is okay to not be okay. There's, there's, there's more opportunities out there to find help and hope. And um, I certainly as more organizations. I remember back when I came into treatment in 2009, there was nothing out there for former NFL players. But since then, now there's, you know, four or five different organizations that are willing to help former NFL players. And same with Major League Baseball and hockey. And, and, and you know, all the organizations, the Jockeys Guild are helping former jockeys and all that. So uh, it's gotten better over the last 10 years, but it's still not to the point to where it needs to be. And the stigma still exists. And the stigma still exists that, that keeps families from raising their hand and asking for help for their kids. Because a lot of people want to say, no, not, not my child or not in my backyard when, yeah, it is. It's right there. And yeah. you need to have those uncomfortable conversations with your kids and know what they're doing and, and, and what they're looking at and where they're spending their money and time. So um, I think it's gotten better. But, you know, I, I want these young athletes to know that it's okay to not be okay. And there's help out there, you know. Let's talk it through. Let's see what's going on. Let's see how we can fix it or you're never going to get to that next level. You know, I think, I think more people, uh, I think is that just echo exactly what you're saying. More people talking about it, more people who are, uh, you know, ambassadors and, you know, idols to some of these kids and role models. You know, we really have to people like yourself speak up and look, it's okay. Look, I did all these great things, but I wasn't perfect. Um, and I had some falls, but this is how you get back up. And uh, you know, I couldn't, I can't echo that, that enough. So you go in now, you write the book. Why, why share all those details? I think, man, it's so courageous and such a great book. Everyone needs to read this thing um, because it's going to teach everyone a lot about themselves, just, just in different points of the book, just, just having the courage to talk about things, to be transparent and, and just have a belief system, et cetera, et cetera. You can get up really from anything. Why, why, why do that? And, and what, was, what were you thinking when you decided to write, to write the book? Well, what I was thinking was, and all of us were thinking of it, were we wanted it to serve as a healing process for the Grimes family, you know, because everybody in my family had a platform in it. You know, everybody participated. They, they had a part in it and they got to uh, they got to share what they were going through back in with my addiction and how it affected them. And that was the main goal. You know, I didn't care if I sold a copy or not. I just wanted it to be a healing process for the Grimes family. And, uh, you know, my wife was such a big part of my recovery and, and, and well, because I put her through so much in my addiction, you know, and, uh, having her as a part of that. And as you can read through that book, you know, I try to give her as much credit as I can because she is the real hero of my story, but my children are also, you know, they're the ones that hung in there and, and, and I can't give enough, I can't give enough credit to, God for hanging in there with me, you know, how, how many times I, sh I shouldn't have been, I shouldn't still be here, but here I am. And uh, so I, I'm just so grateful. And I, I wanted this book to be a re reflection of my gratitude. I mean, a lot of people have stories, you know, we all have stories 
and we all wonder if it's interesting enough for, for somebody else to read and like and all that. But the, the, the main reason for the, for the book was to, uh, was to a healing process, but the reviews have been awesome. Everybody seems to love the book and it's, it's gone over so well. And uh, we're, we're really proud of it. And Lydia had a huge part in it. And uh, my, of course, my children did. I'm sure you read their letters to me while I was in treatment. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. It, was, uh, it was it was a healing process. I think, I, and look, for me, I think what I was most impressed by is that you, you, didn't, you didn't talk about just yourself. You talked about kind of a culture, things that people really need to know how you can help yourself. And look, I did this. I don't blame anybody. This is what happened to me. And at the end of it, like I was really blown away. But then when I got to the letters, I was like, oh, was like whoa, it blew me away. I was like, man, letters in there. And I was like, wow. Like it was, it was, um, man, I was reading it and I was like, oh, man, look at what they were saying and how courageous to put that in there. And I just, man, I, I was, I was taken to another level. And that's, I think that's what made me read it again. Man, I, I was, I just, I love the book. I think everybody needs to read that thing. I, I, oh, man. Well, hey, your check's in the mail. Thanks for saying that. <laughs> I love it. Um, so, so, so tell me, so, so, um, and I don't want to spoil it for people, but when, when did you get to that point where you decided, because look, no, no one, to me, no one's immune to depression, anxiety. I went through some of that stuff myself. When did you get to the point where, you know, you said enough is enough? And then you, you decided, you know what, I am going to go into this treatment and this is going to be it. And it was the final one where they, they flew into Florida and you finally did it. Where did, when did you get to that point? You were like, all right, enough is enough. I'm going to do this. Well, and I guess we call that when you when you finally get sick and tired of being sick and tired, you know, when you finally hit rock bottom and, you know, the perfect storm was coming together in the spring and summer of 2009. Uh, I, I was... I'd lost another job, lost another house, all that as a result of my addiction. You know, I was having seizures uh, pretty, pretty regularly as a result of withdrawal from benzodiazepines. Right. You know, I was running out of those and I'd have a seizure. My daughter wouldn't let me come around my first grandchild because I wasn't fit to be around her new baby. So that was the perfect storm. But the main thing was also my good friend, Tom McHale, who I played next to in Tampa Bay for many years at left guard, he was left guard. He passed away one morning. He just didn't wake up and he was out there doing the same thing I was doing. And that was self-medicating the injuries he got while he played for the Bucks with, with opiates and benzos. And one morning he just didn't wake up. So all of that together, doc was the perfect storm. And my wife was willing to make one more phone call for me, you know, cause I'd put her through so much and, and but she was willing to make one more call and whoever she talked to in New York that day at the league office knew somebody who knew somebody who knew somebody and that's how I got on an airplane that was September 22nd 2009 and uh, I got to treatment and you know I talk about getting there that night and how sick I was when I arrived at treatment and I, somebody opened the car door from the outside and I just fell out and that's when I crawled on those all fours through the door and um you know, the only thing I remember about that night is hearing somebody say, you know, in order to get this, Randy, you've got to have the desperation of a drowning man. And the reason that had such an impact on me then, as even today, was as an eight-year-old kid mm -hmm. in Tyler, Texas, I was out on one of those, uh, you know, those paddle boats that you, you know, you, you paddle with your feet, you yeah. know. 
Yeah. And uh, I had fallen and I was I, I was out there by myself in the middle of Lake Lake uh, uh, Tyler State Park. And I got my feet caught up in something on the bottom of the lake. And I remember and it's my most vivid childhood memory. I remember being trapped on the bottom of that lake and how I fought and how I clawed at the water and how desperate I was to get back to the surface and how I fought with every fiber in my body to get back up there screaming underwater and um when i heard that that night it brought all of that back on me and i knew that i was in for the fight of my life and you know i think i'm a pretty tough guy i've been in a lot of battles you know I get to stay a uh, starter in the nfl for 10 years unless you're winning most of those that's battles right. that's right. but crawling in the door that night doc took it, it it took all the desperation and surrender that that i could muster and um I mean, even, even at rock bottom, you know, it, that pride, that ego, that guilt, that shame, it was all there, but I did it. And, um, you know, I, did I ever tell you the story about uh, um, Pat Summerall? No. Well, I'd gotten to be good friends with him in, uh, in college and uh, when I was at Baylor and, and even into my pro career, you know. And uh, we kind of lost touch after I retired and all that. But what you probably didn't know about Pat is he was a longtime alcoholic, but he was also a guy in long-term recovery. And he told me the story after I'd gotten sober and we were at the 2010 Super Bowl down in uh, Miami. I was sitting there and he told me a story. I had just gotten out of treatment after, after 90 days of treatment. I was down there. I was sitting next to, uh, oh, golly, uh, I'll think of it in a minute, but I was sitting next to some other players. And Pat told me the story about his neighbor back in Dallas and how his neighbor was uh, having organ failure. He was on his third marriage. His wife was his new drinking buddy. He was a full-blown alcoholic and just needed help. And so what he did, Pat did, he got a bunch of his friends together and they went over and did an intervention on this neighbor. And, uh, 90 days later, when Mickey Mantle was walking out of the Betty Ford Clinic, that was his neighbor, Mickey Mantle. <laughs> there was a crowd of people waiting for him, and Mickey approached this crowd, and somebody said, Mickey, what do you most want to be remembered for? And Mickey said that, you know, I want people to really, you know, they thought they were going to get some baseball-related answer or something, and Mickey said, I want people to know that my greatest accomplishment was getting clean and sober. And, and when I crawled in the door that night, that's how I felt, you know, even over all the football accolades, over the birth of my children, my marriage, because if I don't crawl in the door that night, everything else was for nothing. And that was my greatest accomplishment was crawling through that door. Wow, man. You know, that's uh, like I said, I don't want to spoil the book for people because I just want them to read it because it's so, so great. Can, can you walk us kind of through an intervention and, and so they understand what what that's all about and how someone kind of contacts you and then you take it, you take over from there. Cause you're like, spur the moment I'm out of here. I'll take a flight and I go find this person in need. Right. Right. Well, it takes, it takes some time with the family. You know, you got to train the family. You got to get everybody on the same page because everybody has to be unified because we as alcoholics and addicts will sniff out that weak link, you know, and, and, and that's the one that we'll, we'll lean on. So you've got to train the family and boundaries, how to hold boundaries uh, not only throughout the intervention, but after the intervention and everything else. So um, 
it takes a lot of work. There's a lot of phone calls with that and getting people together, making sure everybody can get there at the same time. Uh, finding a location that's suitable uh, is, is always uh, a problem, but well, it is until we can get it worked out. So it, it's just a matter of getting everybody on the same page and training them about addiction, what to expect, what to expect the, the, the person we're doing the intervention on, what they're going to say, what they're going to do, and then preparing for those answers or reactions from them. You know, if they get up and try to run out, what are we going to do? Who's going to go with them? Who's going to block it? You know, if they say this, if they say that, we've got to have an answer. But the main thing is, you know, I make sure that nobody lets it get into an argument because if it gets into an argument or a shouting match, then, then um, it's never going to succeed. It's not going to be a successful intervention. So I'm always on top of that. It's almost like, you know, I kind of direct it as a quarterback, but the family does the hard work and I, I'm just kind of there to monitor and make sure that things don't get out of hand, but also offer hope and the solution. And the solution is, to say, yes, I need help and let's go right now. And, uh, you know, I'll escort them into treatment. I'll take them on, you know, I'll get them on the plane or in the car, whatever it takes, but I'll take them straight to their treatment center. And, uh, you know, that's where Lydia is so helpful. And, and she, she's so good with the families, you know, and they just love her. And they, you know, the, the cool thing about it is when they see us come in and they know my story, they realize that there's hope. You know, that people can survive this, marriages can survive it, families can survive it, you know, that, you know, that relationships are resurrected as a result of putting your hand up and asking for help. So I'm glad you did, you mentioned that too, because I wanted to talk a little bit about her, save, I guess, save the best for last year, you know, your lovely wife that you met at Baylor. Um, meeting the right person, I mean, man, she just, she was there for you. You guys are just soulmates. Like, how do you, how does one pick, you know, a person like that, that just stuck with you through emotional pain, physical pain, emotional pain, she was there for you, and just always had your back. And you seem, I mean, you through humility and transparency, I mean, everybody can see, and I, and I met you guys the first time in Vegas, and ultimately saw you get in Florida. How does one, I don't know, you know, I think, I think it's God-driven, you know, how do you meet that special person like that? Well, I don't know, man, but I know God had a lot to do with it because she loved me even before she knew that I was going to be a pro football player. You know, she she loved me before she even knew when I was a freshman football player at Baylor, not even starting yet. You know, so she's been there from the start. But like I said, she's the hero, Doc. She's the one that went through everything. She's the one who you know, struggled with boundaries because she loved me as a wife, you know, right. um, she's the one that had to put up with, with everything. And she'll be the first to tell you that, you know, there were times she wanted to leave me. There was times that she couldn't handle it anymore. There was times she wanted to protect the children, but God would not allow her. And she'll say this, God would not allow her to leave me because he was promising her that he was going to heal our family. Yeah. And she clung to that, you know, and uh, that that helped motivate her through a lot of the really bad times, you know, and um, man, even today, she's a warrior. You know, she's so good with families and she's really good at helping them do 
things that she wished she would have done, you know, things that she knows will work because she's seen it work through interventions. And, you know, through the last 13 years of my, my sobriety and um, man, I'm grateful for her. I'm grateful for uh, the role model that she is for families. And, you know, not everybody makes it. Not every marriage makes it. Not every family stays together after uh, people get sober, but ours did. And I give her all the credit for that. Now, at, at Baylor, you guys separated once or twice, and then you found your way back. Yeah, when I see her with somebody else, yeah. <laughs> so I want people to know, boy, this is really, God really had a hand in this. Uh, because, yeah, you separated for a little bit, then y'all got back together. You're like, wait, wait, what am I doing here? God said, you need to wake up. Come on. Yeah, and boy, just what a just what an angel. That, like you said, um, just was there for you. And, and I know you're there for her. Um, so, you know, to the, the people that are um, watching this and tuning in, uh, how, how do they contact you to learn more about uh, you and what you're doing for these pro athletes? I think you're just just a guardian and a, and a shepherd to those in, you know, in need. Um, and I know about the website, Randy Grimes speaks out, uh, com, but uh, what, what other um, avenues can, can they go so we can also post them so they can actually contact and see and see the, the many lives that you're impacting every, every single day? Well, you can always find me on whitesandstreatmentcenter.com or whitesandstreatment.com, but also have uh, my, my pro athletes in recovery uh, uh, website too. So, and that's proathletesinrecovery.org. And uh, of course, I'm on all the social medias, you know, Facebook, uh, Twitter, so Sober Center 60, Instagram, uh, LinkedIn, all that stuff. And also, Doc, you can go to offcenterthebook.com, but that's just a link that will take you to Amazon. You can go to Amazon and buy my book by looking up Off Center, Randy Grimes. But, you know, if you can't find me, you're not looking very hard because I'm, I'm trying to be everywhere. I'm trying to get the word out. I'm trying to tear down that stigma associated with mental health and, uh, and substance abuse. And, you know, uh, God has been so good to me throughout my whole life. I mean, really, I just so so many times I shouldn't be here. But but since getting sober, uh, I'm coming up on my 13th anniversary coming up soon and on the 22nd. And uh, life is just so good. And he allows me to get out there and share about my addiction and my story and, and, and share hope with people that all they got to do is raise their hand, you know. And um, I'm just so grateful for where I am right now. And he, God has allowed me to work in a field with former NFL players, you know, and he's allowed me to stay in, uh, attached to a game that I love so much. And uh, that's what uh, Pro Athletes in Recovery is all about, uh, is that bridge between former players and resources. Uh, Major League Baseball's gotten involved, NHL, the NBA, the PGA, MMA, you know, just about every sport that has an organization that supports their former players, God has allowed me to be a part of. And I'm just so grateful for that, man. And, and it's crazy. All I have to do is stay sober and do the next right thing. And great things happen. And, you know, it's just that easy. But, you know, for, for so many people, they, they don't get that. I think that you, you your phone rang and you answered that that call, you know, uh, because a number of things, it's easy to do the right thing. Maybe there's a, a $10 bill on the counter and people will walk away from it. Others will take it. And and so, I mean, uh, again, just the humility, the courage and all that. 
I mean, uh, I remember when we uh, when you gave me a ride to the airport uh, from when we were in, in Tennessee together, and uh, right. and uh, you told me about the book, and I was like, I'm like, man, you know, that's that's gonna be cool. You're writing a book. I had no idea it was gonna be that, man. Like I was, just, <laughs> I, I didn't either. And I, and I, I didn't remember. Either. And I remember uh, meeting with good old big big Sam McDowell, man. That, that guy, love him to death. And uh, we definitely have to connect again for sure. I want to come down there. Um, but but now again, now as you're doing this, because you can tell the passion in your eyes. Like you are like, I'm doing something. I'm doing God's work. Your wife is there with you. Uh, and in the book, I mean, it's it's well it's well um, illustrated how she's putting her arms around these people. You guys just expressing love, and you really care. It's not just this 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 these sort of um, exercises that you're going through. You really care about these people, and you check up on them. And 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 so it's not like you're just delivering a package and then you're out. You're actually checking in on people. And and I guess for the audience listening. And, and trying to get more people to understand that it's okay to talk about this stuff. No matter where you are in your life, whether you were at the ranks of being a celebrity like, like, like you have been, it's, all, it's okay to talk about them because as a role model, more people are gonna, are gonna listen. And I think once they get over that barrier of the embarrassment and all that, you know, more people are gonna be affected and we're gonna get really uh, some more groundwork with this and, and some more traction. Um, I hope so. I hope so, because this is such a devastating disease and it wrecks families and it wrecks marriages. And, you know, uh, we're we're within a we, we have a pandemic within a pandemic, you know, basically where we're losing an entire generation of young people to overdose right in front of our eyes. You know, one hundred and ten thousand people last year. That's incredible. And I know for a fact that we, we're not going to legislate our way out of it or arrest our way out of it, but I do think we can educate our way out of it. So that's, that's our role. You know, that's what I do. That's what Lydia does. That's what all my people in my industry try to do is educate families on this disease of addiction and the mental health that goes along with it. And um, man, if, somebody's, if somebody else has a better solution, let me know. Because I'm willing to do whatever I can to save lives. And that's that's basically what it is, Doc. People are dying in front. You know, I carry around uh, four four things of Narcan everywhere I go. Because every I just, I'm always expecting to run into somebody that's overdosed, you know? It's just oh. that common. Oh, yeah. And people think that it's gotten so much better, but it really hasn't. No. You know, so the first time we met, man, years ago, you, you haven't aged much, Randy. I mean, you know, oh, please. have you changed your nutrition or something? Because the next question I got for you is how's being a grandfather? Because now you're interactive with, you know, with, 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 the, with the grandkids and all that. How, how, how has that changed you? Oh, my gosh. I, maybe maybe that's kept me a little younger. I know <laughs> I don't look it. Maybe I, I think it. You know, my brain thinks I'm still 20. But, uh, you know, the grands are, it's, it's so different than, uh, than raising your own children. You know, you can, you can love them, you can spoil them, you can have fun with them, then you can give them back. You know? <laughs> That's what I hear. <laughs> <laughs> but we, uh, you know, Lydia, Lydia is in heaven every time she's with those babies and they, they just love on her and she's such a good grandmother and we, we enjoy having our time with them. And them being in Houston and us being out here in Florida, that's kind of rough. And my son, of course, he lives in, in uh, Rwanda, 
with his baby and his wife. So they, they we're, we're all spread out. But when we were just recently all together and we had a great time and, you know, it's, you know, Doc, it's just so much different now. It's, uh, yeah, it is, it's unexplainable. Well, I tell you, anyone uh, watching this, this, um, you know, this broadcast, uh, this, this uh, called Rise Above Again, powered by Pivotal Moments Media, man, th this has been such a great time to catch up with you, man. We're going to do this more often. Um, but well, everyone... You're my hero, so thank you. For... <laughs> oh, thank you, man. <laughs> you, you really are. This is the book. Guys, pick this book up. It's, it's incredible. Uh, don't mind the kind of things I've been because I've, I've been through this book a few times. Uh, such, such bravery, courageous transparency in this book. You're going to learn a lot just about the culture, uh, just about being up, being down and fighting your way back up to the top, doing really courageous things, um, getting your family back. And my friend, my man, Randy Grimes, thank you so much for being on my Thank you, Doc. Thank you very much. Thank <laughs> you.